0: Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 3. Would you please now listen for the word of the Lord. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The word of the Lord. So, angels are uh, pretty hot right now.
1: A recent Gallup poll of Americans noted that a ton of people believe in angels. How many? Well, more people believe in angels than hell. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, More people believe in angels than the devil. I'm fine with that. More people believe in angels even than heaven. Okay. In fact, belief in angels at 72% came in a narrow second only to God at 78%. Now, the poll didn't unpack why this was the case or why belief in angels exceeds the belief in any afterlife, but it's worth noting that the fastest rise of belief in angels is not among Christians, but rather new age adherents. There are angel seminars, angel spirit mediums, angel numerology, and of course, angel-oriented crystals you got to get the crystals, y'all. This increase in angel belief tends to garner two different interpretations. One way of looking at it is that, well, non-Christian belief in angels reveals this deep spiritual hunger by people. People who are tapping into biblical truth without even trying. The other view is that this reveals a deep spiritual vanity in people. People who approach angels as useful, supernatural allies without any of the philosophical or ethical demands that they get placed on their life the way that God might. Or perhaps, like most things, it's probably a little bit of both. Likewise, as the author of Hebrews begins his sermon into this community of Jewish Christians in Rome about angels… There are different interpretations of what is happening in this church. Last week, we identified that the anxiety motivating this shift away from Jesus is the increasing persecution by Emperor Nero, apparently the inventor of the chin strap beard. Ironically, Nero was the one who let the expelled Jews come back to Rome ten years prior But now he's persecuting them again, except for this time for being Christian. And so the question then is, how does this community's view of angels potentially tempt them with a kind of exit, a a kind of off-ramp from worshiping Jesus? Are they considering venerating angels to the point of quasi-worship Or or is there some confusion about whether uh, Jesus is a quasi-angel himself, or perhaps it's a little bit of both? However, our author, who we identified most likely as the Jewish Christian intellectual Apollos, chooses to correct them not by giving them a lecture on the doctrine of angels, but rather highlighting Scripture on the supremacy of of Jesus. And so let's pick up in chapter 1 verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. All right, so pro tip, whenever you are reading your Bible and you see the formatting kind of all spaced out and indented like we we saw this morning, it can only mean one of two things. Either the author is quoting a song or the author is quoting scripture. Today, it's the latter. By and large, Apollos is going to let scripture speak for itself. What's the logic behind that? Well, basically, Apollos writes that, well, whatever you may believe about angels, you may want to compare that in Scripture to what it says about Jesus. Because when did God ever call angels one of His kids? Never, if you check your Bibles. And this is a pretty effective approach. However, it is interesting to note that some of the Scriptures that Apollo lists to make his argument are actually Bible verses that are taken completely out of their original context. A number of Old Testament verses that are going to be quoted throughout Hebrews, and here immediately in verse 5, are not prophecies about the Messiah. In fact, the scriptures we see here in verse 5 are actually originally psalms about King David and King Solomon, not Jesus. In fact, if someone were to try to preach like this in our church today, we would say that they're doing a terrible job of exegesis, and I imagine Q&A would not go well for them after. So how can the author of Hebrews then be Oxford level in his education, like we mentioned last week, but seem to fail biblical interpretation 101? Two reasons. First, because Apollos is a Jewish theologian engaging with Jewish scriptures, he's using a distinctive Jewish interpretive technique known as midrash. The Old Testament scholar Vanessa Lovelace defines midrash as "quote a Jewish mode of interpretation that not only engages the words of the text." behind the text and beyond the text, but also focuses on each letter and the words left unsaid in each line. In other words, a midrash is often less about a historical grammatical interpretation, that's what we modern people are very fond of, and more about an imagery poetic interpretation. It's less about forcing the listener into a logical proof than inspiring the listener to expand their theological imagination. Or to use a contemporary analogy, think a modern rapper using an eight-bar sample of a hip-hop classic and then using that to make a banger new song. I think five of you got that. Okay. The second reason is that both of these verses were adopted very early by the first Christians as inspiration for Jesus' Messiahship. Apollos is going to give his audience new material, as it were, but for now he wants to hit them with the classics that they all know. In fact, Apollos leads into these classic early church scriptures on the heels of quoting an early church hymn in verses 3 and 4 that we heard last week. The goal here is to create maximum familiarity, maximum nostalgia, if you will, with his audience. Why? Because he's just started his sermon, and immediately telling someone they're wrong is not going persuade them i don't care how good my arguments are if i try to correct a person without establishing a rapport with them it's not going to go well in fact some of y'all have not learned this yet on social media right like like some of you i've seen it some of you are trying to use facts and reason and peer-reviewed studies that's cute really cute right like nine out of ten times that's gonna do zero good And Apollos knows this. And so he's starting not only where there is core consensus, but core memories. Once he does that, then he begins to expand his compare and contrast arguments with new material. So let's go to verse 6, hopscotching through verse 13. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make enemies a footstool for your feet. What's the compare and contrast here? Jesus is meant to be worshipped. Angels are meant to do the worshipping. Jesus is enthroned as humanity's king. Angels exist as servants of humanity's king. Jesus is uncreated, unchanging, and will have no end. Angels are created, perishable, and may not exist forever. But notice what Apollos does here. We've already said that he's not giving a biblical lecture on angels because, honestly, there's not that much material to go on. But he's also not denigrating angels. Just like last week, in his argument about the Jewish scriptures, it was not that the Old Testament is bad and only Jesus is good. It was whatever you think about the Old Testament, Jesus is better. It's the same here. Look at verse 7 and verse 10. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame, a fire. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed. It's not that angels are bad and only Jesus is good, it's whatever you think about angels, Jesus is better. Yes, angels are like wind and flame. That is impressive. That is glorious. But Jesus will one day roll up the galaxies of the universe itself and fold it like it's laundry. Now maybe, if I'm into new age crystals that communicate with angel friends, this message is directly applicable for me today. Right? Like maybe I need to realize I should put down the crystals and pick up the communion instead. But if that's not me is what is being said here have any application in my life? I believe it does. Because the psychology behind the original Hebrews audience is that they are tempted to make a good thing, this thing is angels in this case, and taking that good thing, they will make a functional Savior out of it. A functional Savior other than Jesus. And to be clear, they're not going to outright reject Jesus. They'll just think too little of Him. That is, Jesus is fine, but can I pray to these angels too? How might that sound for me? Jesus is fine, but I really need to work on my career right now. Jesus is fine. (sighs) This political cause is really important for me right now. Jesus is fine, but X, this thing, is really what I'm counting on right now. And you know, as long as it's relatively easy to follow Jesus, as long as it's still relatively convenient, I can hold The tension of those two things together. But what will will reveal my functional saviors is the moment that worshiping Jesus starts to get a little socially costly or inconvenient to my schedule or, or conflicts with the thing I really care about, my worship of Jesus will begin to decrease. Because even if I'm calling Jesus my Savior, my functional Savior is what truly has my loyalty. It's what I truly think is making my life
0: worth living.
1: So in verse 14, Apollos offers this wonderful antidote to this temptation. And you know, he doesn't just say, well, stop having functional Saviors. Don't do that. No, he wants his listeners to understand the relationship of Jesus to all the other good things in our lives. He says, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What does this mean? Are not the good things in your life meant to serve you rather than you serve Them? You were not made to worship angels. But you were not made to worship your career either. You were not made to worship ideological causes. Y'all, we weren't even made to worship our kids. Apollos says that instead, when you worship Jesus when you know that you were made to inherit salvation, God will take these good things, career, causes, kids, and he will help you order them in a healthy way. God will give you clarity about your relationships to these good things so that rather than you being ultimately enslaved by them, they can be of service to your flourishing. And y'all... This is what I'm already loving about Hebrews so much. We're only two weeks in, and I think this is really cool. That despite the appearance of this being this grand theological masterwork, Apollos is constantly connecting the theological to the ethical. What starts off abstract very quickly becomes practical. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Just as Paulos said the greatest danger to our spiritual flourishing is not rejecting Jesus as our Savior, but rather making good things our functional Savior's the greatest danger to faith itself is not rejecting the gospel, but rather drifting from the gospel. Here's what I mean. I really believe that active rejections of Christianity show that on some level, the person actively rejecting Christianity cares about what is true, That's one reason I'm not particularly worried about deconstruction. Deconstruction only happens in people who care about what is true. God honors people who care about truth. But look, I've even known atheists who are closer to the gospel than people who claim to be Christians. Why? Because the atheist often cares enough about truth to engage with, to wrestle with one or more aspects of the Christian faith. God can work with that. But the hardest spiritual condition for God to transform is not disbelief, but indifference. It's not active resistance, but passive Complacency. The Greek word that Apollos uses here for drift, paraomen, is found nowhere else in the Bible, and it is a nautical term. It is as one who floats out with the current. No drama, but no resistance either. Just carried away. Y'all, please hear me on this. Almost every single person I know who has left Christianity has not done so because they deconstruct it. They have not done so because they just stopped believing and became an atheist. No, they left Christianity because they slowly, quietly drifted out. Skipping Christian community for one Sunday turned into two, turned into three, turned into four months. And then one day, after feeling very rested from sleeping in, they realize that it's really nice to have Sunday mornings off. And after all, I really got to get ready for the work week anyway. Just hold that tension for a moment. When Apollo says in verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he's referencing the drifting of the Hebrew people for over a thousand years after they were liberated from slavery in Egypt. You see, they, re- they received salvation from the oppression of empire. They received deliverance from the hopelessness of slavery. And Jewish tradition says they were then given the Ten Commandments through angelic intermediaries. All they needed to do then as a response to this salvation was to keep God's commandments and God would keep them secure as a people. But in our first reading this morning in Deuteronomy 4, they are warned that, quote, when your, you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, then you will soon utterly perish from the land. And yet, despite receiving this message from angels, Apollo says they drifted from what they heard Ancient Israel repeatedly stumbled into corruption, spiritually, ethically, politically, often within a single generation, and eventually they were scattered among the foreign peoples just as God warned in verse 27. And so Apollos gives this heavy parallel to a Jewish Christian audience with Jewish history. If the result of not listening to angels was being scattered, can you imagine what will happen if we ignore listening to God incarnate? And y'all, notice he doesn't even give an answer. He's like, you don't even want to know. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And yet there's still one more danger but it's probably not what you think. The danger this morning in hearing a warning about spiritual drifting is that that if we heed this warning, we will often think that the solution is to work harder at being a good Christian. Like, oh, well, if drifting looks like not coming to church as much, and not reading my, my Bible as much, and, and not confessing my sin as much, then okay, I, I know what I need to do. I, I need to confess my sins all the time obsessively. I, I need to get one of those read your Bible in a yearbooks, and hopefully I don't like flame out in Leviticus. I, I, I need to not miss church ever, and if I do, I should feel really guilty about it. Y'all, I once met a woman who never missed Sunday school in 45 years, and she had all the pins to prove it, and apparently they actually make pins for this, right? Like, if she was a four-star general of Sunday school, like, that, that was what she looked like, okay? But you know what? She wasn't a very nice person. <laughs> the antidote to spiritual drifting is not working harder. It's not being more religious. It's not even going to church more. Instead, it's what Apollo says in verse 1. Simply paying more attention to what God has already said. It's not doing more. It's focusing more. It's not trying to save yourself. It's holding fast to the truth that God has already saved you. In Deuteronomy 4, the prophet that God speaks through says that even if Israel drifts away, and they will, then God will make a way back for them. Verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to your Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. If this is true about God's people then, then this is true for God's people today. However, there's one other caveat. Then, if the Hebrew people wanted to return to God, you had to seek God you had to do some work to show that you should be taken back you you had to search with all your heart and all your mind and your soul and that was reasonable but now the good news of the gospel is that god has even done this on your behalf you aren't required to desperately seek out god as if god is somehow obscured or hidden In Jesus, God came to earth and sought you out. You don't have to work your way back into God's mercy. In Jesus, God on the cross gave His heart and His soul so that you could be gifted unmerited mercy. That is a great salvation accomplished by the only true Savior. May we give Him All right, Colin, we've got some questions here. Are they being nice today? Meh. All right. (laughs) (laughs) If we cannot pray to angels, can we pray to saints? (laughs) All right. Okay, so let's talk about Protestant (laughs) Reformation here. All right, so one of of the concerns of the Protestant Reformers was uh, the prayers to saints, particularly that the prayers to saints had uh, replaced devotion to Jesus and God. Um, And so... Yeah, um, so if you're Protestant, that's usually not in your framework. Now the question is, well, maybe you really want to pray to saints. That's it's not in my jam, um, and I, I think there's some logistical issues because if a saint is just one person and they're getting like millions of requests, right? Because the idea is that like with a saint, that like oh, it's just like asking a friend to pray for you, and it's like well, they, they would have a lot on their plate. Uh, so yeah, it, I don't recommend it. But also, if you're a person who's like I. It's, I come from a Catholic tradition or an Orthodox tradition, and I really am I sinning if I'm doing that? I don't think it's a sin. I don't think you're doing something blasphemous. So even C.S. Lewis was kind of like, and he's kind of an evangelical icon, right? He's like, yeah, I, I throw up some prayers to the dead every now and then. He's like, just, just don't get out of control with it. Um, so I think the key thing is, right, is your devotion and your focus and your, your reliance on Jesus Higher and greater than any other sort of thing in your life. And that's usually a good kind of like self-assessment. Okay, if I have some baggage with Jesus, praying to angels just feels more approachable. How would you suggest making a shift? Oh, that's a fascinating mm. question. I you know I'm not I'm already gonna say I'm not gonna have a good answer on that. I've never thought about that. So I'm gonna give a better answer, hopefully, later <laughs> this week. Um so if you have some baggage with Jesus, so maybe again, this is not necessarily the question, but like okay thinking about the parts of the Trinity that you have the least baggage with. So, like, right, some people are, like, really comfortable praying to God the Father, Mm -hmm. right? And they're not so comfortable praying with Jesus. Like, maybe that's a shift. Or maybe you're like, oh, the patriarchal thing with God the Father seems weird. I'm actually more comfortable with Jesus. Or maybe you're like, the the Holy Spirit, that's got some feminine elements. Maybe I'll go with that. So, if you think about the Trinity, think about that, because it's all God, that aspect which you mentally are most comfortable with, Mm -hmm. and see how your prayers might feel different if you're focusing on a different dimension of the trinity because it all is one so try that see how that works come talk to me um and yeah i'll maybe try to think more about that for later in the live stream that's a really good answer considering you have not seen any of these questions this morning all right last one all right do you believe in angels oh yeah Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. Uh, I, I do believe in angels. In what context? In what, like, like touched by the angel or no? um. Like. (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, it's, it's pretty. We all know you're a little touched. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> True. True. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the biblical account is clear that there are messengers from God. The Greek word is angelos. Angelos just means messenger from God. Um, and so do they look like what pop culture has made them to be? Almost certainly not. Uh, but the biblical narrative is clear that there are messengers from God and they talk to people and that's all over the place. So if I believe in scripture, I can't deny that there are angels in some form or fashion. So yes, I totally believe in angels. And here are our little angels right now. Please help them find their families. And if you have any more questions, feel free to text them in, and Colin will address them later this week on Facebook Live. I'll get it by Tuesday. Awesome. Okay.